everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wadenu with your Mo News conversation this week. I wanted to get to a topic many of you have been asking me about, especially on Instagram, crypto. Summer is heating up, but we are now deep in the crypto winter. Cryptocurrencies have had their worst year in a decade. The leading currency, Bitcoin, has plunged more than 50% this year alone. It is currently trading just under $20,000, and it is down 70% from its all-time high, which was about $69,000 for one Bitcoin back in November. And the larger market is not doing any better. The overall market cap, the size of the crypto market, has decreased from $3 trillion down to $1 trillion. Some crypto banks and so-called stablecoins have gone bankrupt. And a number of companies are doing significant layoffs in this space. Those who have been skeptical of cryptocurrencies all along are reveling and saying, I told you so. And then there's the hardcore so-called hodlers, H-O-D-L, hodlers who are saying, don't you worry, crypto will come back even stronger. So what should we think of it all? Is crypto dead? Will crypto make a return in a different form? Or will it rise again to the peaks of 2021? To make sense of all of that and the crypto market, we're going to turn in this episode to Zach Guzman. Guzman is the author of a newsletter that is titled simply, Crypto Uncomplicated. His bottom line in this conversation is we're going to find out in the coming months who effectively was, quote, swimming naked. We'll explain what that concept is. We're also going to discuss the history of crypto, how we got to this point, and what caused the bubble to burst, so to speak how he imagines we'll be adopting crypto in the near future and the long-term future, given we're now more than 10 years into these whole crypto projects. And most importantly, what he's telling his friends who are asking him, is now the time to buy? Have we hit the low? And we'll get into that in this conversation as well. Guzman now writes that crypto uncomplicated newsletter, but he is a former anchor and reporter for Yahoo Finance and CNBC, and he's working in the whole Web 3.0 space. We'll explain what 3.0 means in this interview as well. A reminder before we get started here to follow and subscribe to the podcast on your app and leave us a review. Every one of you matters. Every follow matters. Every review does too. And please make sure to spread the word about Mo News, this podcast, the Instagram account, etc. to your friends, family, acquaintances, strangers on the street. Appreciate all the support all of you have been giving us. Now to my conversation with Zach Guzman. 
Zach, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Excited to chat. Yeah, so full disclosure, I've been dabbling with the Bitcoin and a few of the other cryptos since about 2017 when I started hearing the hype. I was at CBS News at the time, and it had finally sort of broken into the mainstream media as we watched sort of that climb up and then, of course, that eventual collapse and before the most recent climb up and eventual collapse um, and this back and forth. And so I've been getting so many messages of late from people just looking for answers as to what is happening. And so I want to begin there with you, Zach. How would you summarize what is happening right now when it comes to cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good um, example to look back on because that was also kind of when I started to take a deeper dive into it. If you remember back in 2018, that run up to a record high when it was close to hitting 20,000 and everybody was all you know taken aback by, oh, wow, I should probably get into this. And a lot of people did get into it at the top, right? And so you know, not too hard to connect the dots between what's happening now and then. But it is a little bit different, I guess, this time around, because, you know, these things always go in cycles, whether it's crypto or the general economy. And a lot of it comes down to excitement. And in this case, a lesson that the traditional financial world has long known, which is it's dangerous to play with leverage. Sometimes people don't just make one bet, but they make a few different bets and, you know, get out over their skis. And when things start to turn, which, you know, it's been a while since we've seen crypto prices go in the wrong direction. A lot of it was super exciting to watch on the way up if you were in this space. But um, when it turns around and significantly declines, you start to see some people who are over levered uh, run into some issues. And that's basically what's going, uh, what's happening right now this time around is there are a lot of centralized lenders out there who may have just not known that the risks were as large with the people they were lending to. And we're seeing this time some pretty big players get into some pretty big problems, which is causing a bit of a panic to spill over just sector-wide in crypto, even beyond those parties involved. And, and, you know, it's not too dissimilar from what we saw play out in traditional finance back in 08, 09, uh, a lot of things like that, where unlike in traditional finance, you've got some institutions that are there to kind of help quell the panic or step in when there are uh, issues around liquidity and insolvency risks. Uh, in crypto, there is no crypto Fed. There is no lender of last resort that might step in to try on, and help. On things purpose, right? On on purpose, there is no crypto Fed. Yes, on purpose, and it's something that all the crypto bros out there pride themselves on. In fact, if you're out there attacking the Fed all the time for, you know, stepping in and helping the big banks, you can't really be on the flip side of that and beg for help when things uh, get dark in your neck of the woods. So, you know, it's 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 a bit of a back and forth and a bit of a humble pie being served uh, around the crypto world right now. Yeah, I mean, there's liquidations at worst, right? There's a company is doing significant job cuts. The headlines are bleak. It's looking like June 22, 2022 was the worst month in Bitcoin history. It lost nearly 60% of its value. Ethereum, another uh, prominent cryptocurrency, down nearly 7% in Q2, most in its history. And I guess the question I know you've been asking it in your newsletter, Zach, is where is the bottom? How long does this winter last? And I'll ask it in context because one thing you went into recently was these four-year cycles when it comes to crypto. There's a four-year cycle. Explain the four-year cycle and exactly what's different this time around. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people who had been remarking on kind of where things could go on the upside price-wise um, had been predicting things that we never hit 
some people were calling for $150,000 price level for Bitcoin in this bull run. And maybe that looked realistic when we were sitting at, you know, a new all-time high of 64,000 and the euphoria was there and it wasn't incredibly... Right. How, high, how, how high did Bitcoin end up getting in the fall? We got to, I mean, the all-time high was about 64,000, you know, so that's, that's where, um, you know, things topped out. But clearly a lot of people were way more optimistic than that. And it didn't seem crazy to think, okay, if we got here and there's a lot more room to run, you could see us maybe getting up to 120 or something. There were a lot of Wall Street analysts even predicting that um, if, if the good times continued. What, um, what makes it a little bit different this time, though, I think, was a lot of the euphoria was really based on leverage. So, you know, if you have $10, but you can borrow money to invest more than you have in Bitcoin, that can drive up prices in, when times are good. Um, but it can also exacerbate moves to the downside when that momentum shifts. And so I think that leverage in the system really did play a significant role this time and maybe why... Um, you know, some of that full bull run didn't pan out this cycle. But to your point and to your question on how these things go, generally it is kind of triggered by um, Bitcoin's halvening. So miners get rewarded for securing the Bitcoin network. And every four years or so, generally that reward is cut in half. And that kind of by itself can sometimes create um, price movements and restart a cycle. And so the analysts, the, um, the people who look at these things were predicting, you know, the happening happened a few years ago and was kind of all going to plan up until when this uh, last year or so of the bull run was kind of cut short by what we're seeing play out right now in terms of these centralized lenders running into um, liquidity problems. So, you know, there was a model in place and that model right now is kind of falling apart a little bit. Um, as we see kind of some of the panic spill over. But, you know, it's not crazy to think that, you know, panics, whether it's crypto or in the real traditional financial world, panic eventually subsides, right? Eventually the sellers exhaust themselves or anyone who would be liquidated is liquidated. Um, and you get back to kind of business as usual. Um, so right, the you people know, who get scared by all of this sell off their assets and the, and the people who are in it to win it long-term stick right. around for the next cycle. Right. And so, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, calling a bottom is a very tricky thing, but if you look back at prior cycles as well, and you kind of retrace, you know, if we go back to 2018, it was what about an 80% collapse from that all time high in Bitcoin and Ethereum. So like if you, if you take that same kind of percent retracement and, and put it on you know the chart today you're looking at some still room to fall um from where we are right now around 20k um and again i don't think by any means some of this panic has completely shook out so you know sitting here as crazy as it sounds you know relative to where we were at 64,000 not too long ago i do think right now the momentum is still to the downside and, and that's just how these things go sometimes you, you get drawn back to earth but i mean we can talk about the technology as well because yeah. long term a lot of people are still believers on that totally and and i want to get to all of that in a second but i i want to back up because you you used the term happening and it, it gets to the larger question i had which is but before we go further here there's a lot of folks who continue to ask like please explain it to me like i'm in fifth grade this whole crypto thing and these include by the way zach people who've invested because they believe in the hype and they got a Coinbase account or they got a Gemini account or whatever. And they're like, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy some shares of whatever. I'm going to buy a, a bit of Bitcoin, a bit of whatever. 
And if you ask them, like, so explain exactly what it is that you just bought, they have a difficult time explaining it. So in in layman's terms, cryptocurrency differentiation from regular currency and, and how it gets its value. Um, it's not too dissimilar. If anyone out there has used Venmo, you know, it's basically the same thing where it's someone's keeping track of you're sending some money from your account to a different account. And that's really all Bitcoin was meant to be, right? Um, you know, it just is, again, an alternative system to not having to worry about what the central bankers are going to do and everything else. It's, it's presented that way as much more clear and easy to see all these transactions taking place on, again, a public ledger. So that's kind of, I guess, the simplest way to explain it is that it's a more fair, quote unquote, as the Bitcoin advocates would say, a more fair economic system. Um, now, that's kind of the promise. Uh, if you kind of see what may be playing out right now, you kind of see uh, a lot of, again, leverage in the system, central lenders that are basically acting like crypto banks, taking money in, loaning it out. And you kind of start to run into some of the same situation and same problems we ran into on a dollar-based system as well. So while there might not be a central bank kind of running the show, there still are centralized um, private institutions acting similar to banks. and that becomes tricky when there is no Fed to kind of backstop some of the risks that those quote unquote crypto banks are taking. And we're learning kind of the consequences of uh, that playing out in real time right now. Right. Crypto was meant to be different. We're going to be different than the traditional system. And yet it's starting to look like the system. And frankly, as you watch the, the main the main equity markets drop, you've started to see sort of a, you've started to see a, a correlation between the markets. But you you alluded to it, you know, as a payment system that I'd go around and I'd go pay for. And I think to a certain extent, you see it out there like concert tickets. I mean, certain companies have tried to say, hey, we take Bitcoin now, but we haven't really seen mass adoption. So what do we know at this juncture? I mean, Bitcoin in particular is more than 10 years old. Uh, a lot of cryptos, smaller cryptos rose up in the last few years. What have we found in terms of like, when you have to explain to like average consumers, what their and frankly companies or small businesses, what is the sell right now in terms of uh, what uses you'll have on a day to day basis for crypto? I think you know it's kind of country specific, and that has been the interesting thing, right? I mean, you know, America has a lot of freedom that is afforded to its citizens. Um, one of the biggest ones I think a lot of us take for granted is the fact that we are basically the economy that sets the rules. Um, you know, and we saw that in the, in the great recession, you know, we have a lot of flexibility to kind of print cash and be the ones that are, you know, the reserve currency around the world. So, you know, if we're too big to fail, then, you know, that gives us a lot of different, um, freedoms that a lot of other economies out there don't have. Um, so, I mean, if you think about resetting the question in that frame of mind, there's a lot of people that live on this globe that are outside the borders of the US. And I think that crypto really does mostly appeal to them when we're thinking about ways that they can store their relative worth instead of trusting in maybe more corrupt governments. And so that was always one of the curious points for me and watching everyone in the US kind of be excited by crypto for that reason. You know, it's not one that really affects us day to day. But if you're in Argentina, yeah, we always take for granted. I, I've heard from people abroad, like you guys in America, can take for granted that you wake up in the morning and the dollar is pretty much worth what the dollar was the day before. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, there's inflation now, etc. But it's not like in some of these countries where you wake up and suddenly you got to show up with a suitcase full of that currency because 
the currency fluctuated. Yeah. And I mean, I, I studied abroad in Argentina. I saw that up close. And, you know, even my host mom kicked me out because she thought she was getting paid in dollars. She basically used me as That's a, a prime example, chip. Argentina. I mean, they've seen incredible, crazy currency fluctuations through the years. Yes. And so, you know, if it's that bad to where my host mom says, you got to get out because they duped me. I'm not getting paid in dollars. I'm getting paid in Argentinian pesos. Then, yeah, it's a it's a serious problem. And so, you know, Bitcoin or any of these other cryptos that are kind of being put out now for transactions definitely, I think, appeals a lot more to people who live in in governments and uh, parts of the world that have those major inflationary issues or just distrust of the government. Um, not to belittle, you know, our distrust of the government, and there are reasons for those here in the U.S. I think too. But what kind of looks a little bit more exciting when you think about what crypto represents beyond just transactions and, and relative store of of wealth is kind of the technology when it comes to the fringe parts of crypto we're seeing right now, which weren't really there in 2018 on the last bull run, but are there now when it comes to NFTs and uh, digitizing ownership of a lot of different things and what it means to kind of start to financialize the decisions we make um, in our everyday lives that you might not have thought about maybe generating some sort of income or, or the idea that like, you know, everything we do on Facebook or a lot of these other private companies, these tech giants, uh, you know, ex- taking value out of our decisions, learning and selling ads against what we like and don't like. I mean, a lot of that data is a very interesting proposition when it when it's no longer something that is taken from us, but something that we own. And I think Web3 and what NFTs unlock there is, is kind of starting to explore that reality as well. So that's that's really, I think, what separates this bull run this cycle from the last one. Zach, you just mentioned the, the term Web3, and we see this thrown out a lot. I know this is something you're working on. Uh, define for folks what Web3 is. Yeah, so Web3, you know, if you think about Web1, Web2, and Web3, basically, that's where those terms come from. Web1 was basically the early days of the internet, right? And if you think back to even pre-dial-up, when not everyone had internet in their house, it was kind of, what do those pages look like? Uh, what do they really unlock? for um, what the internet could be. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of stuff you could do. It was basically read privileges is what you would go. So you'd go to a site, you'd look at it, it'd be static text on a web page, and that was it. You could read Yeah, this is like early Prodigy, CompuServe, AOL, or even before those, huh? Extremely early. I mean, I'll be honest, I think I might have been one or two when it was going on. So, I mean, I have no firsthand experiences. This is the 80s. What, yeah. <laughs> beyond what I've learned. Um, but then you get around to web two, right? Which is kind of where we're at right now, which is read, write. And so that unlocked, you know, a little bit more, uh, I guess, exciting things when it comes to Facebook, Google, everything else was much more dynamic. You can actually write your own content. You could create your own, uh, online identity, everything like that. So social media is a good example of web, web 2.0, if you will. Yeah. Perfect example there. So you've got web one, you've got web two, web three is read, write, own is the other thing that's thrown in there now too, which Mm -hmm. is not only can you create the content on the sites or anything else out there, um, but you would also own it as well. Um, It's not just one central authority like a Facebook or a Google who is basically controlling everything in that ecosystem, but it's you that's controlling everything that's done in that ecosystem. Um, And so, you know, what could that look like? It could be a decentralized Facebook where every user basically controls their own posts um, in the way that they have to kind of give up. 
instead of giving up the control of those posts and everything to a central power like a Facebook, um, everyone would basically own every decision there themselves. So if you want to run ads against what my data is, then you would have to pay me for that. Um, it basically flips the model on its head. Um, there are, of course, a lot of issues with that when it comes to how do you start a decentralized platform? Because the beauty part of a centralized platform is everyone can kind of go to it and everyone's on it. It's very difficult to imagine a world where a Facebook even has any excitement if there are no reasons to go to that site or your friends aren't on it, right? It took Facebook a lot of money and a lot of time to scale up to the power uh, that it is today. So, I mean, look, it's kind of unproven. There's promise of Web3, but there are a lot of problems right now that are, that are being worked through in like different use cases beyond just social media. Um, but it's exciting to think about the possibilities that could come from true ownership um, on the internet that really was never possible before. And and what is the role crypto would play in Web3? Or is it basically the rest of the internet mimicking the structure of cryptocurrencies? I mean, I guess, you know, some of that is answered by what we're seeing with NFTs now, right? It's like, how would anyone ever track like the ownership of, of digital media before? Right. And that's kind of where I guess the, the whole NFT wave started. You mentioned the Sotheby's auction, the Christie's auctions. You know, it was really that Beeple digital artwork that sold for more than $60 million that kind of set off, oh, that's what an NFT could be. And, you know, uh, to critics' credit, a lot of it wasn't really, you're not buying anything really. In the early days, no artist was selling the ownership of their art. It was just a picture that you had the rights to that NFT. You're basically buying something that said, you own the rights to that thing, but it didn't have any real ownership rights, no copyright rights. And we've seen that kind of evolve now in the last year where projects are giving up copyright rights. And you're seeing that with the Board Ape Yacht Club, which I've written about on Crypto and Complicated. It's really pushing, I think, you know, the fringe for what does ownership look like when, when you really do own the thing that you're buying there? Um, and what does that look like when it starts to earn you money? And that's kind of the promise of a lot of these different things. So look, it's it's the early, early days. This is the this is the exciting piece that I have when I talk to founders in this space is like, it's exactly like what it was working at Netscape or anything in Web 1, thinking about what Web 2 would look like, right? It's like, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take adoption. It's going to take everyone getting comfortable with how this technology works. But it is kind of the early days. And if you believe them, then it's it's going to be exciting to see where, where some of that stuff goes. So we're in the fall. We've hit record highs. Uh, a bit just over six months later, we're hitting record, you know, uh, significant lows. Um, what happened? What what led to this crash? Um it's it's interesting because it's basically, you know, there's there's an old adage from Warren Buffett, which is you only ever really see uh, who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, right? Everything's good when the water's there. You could be swimming, you could be swimming naked, but then the water goes out and you see, okay, these people really are not wearing any bathing suits. And that's kind of what happens in any any kind of financial downturn. Again, not limited to crypto. Same thing happens in traditional banking. Some people get over their skis, they're over leveraged. And uh, when prices turn, they get margin called and they have to sell things. And sometimes they don't sell enough to kind of meet their uh, requirements. And so with crypto overall, you can trace things back. And I wrote about this too. There was a project called Terra um, 
that basically went to zero in a matter of days. Uh, it was a $40 billion project, the biggest kind of crypto collapse in history. And that happened in May. So, so just for folks to be aware, when we talk about crypto projects, we're talking about like there are thousands and thousands of projects, right? And you'd consider Bitcoin a project, Ethereum a project. In this case, Terra is a project. Correct. Yeah. Terra was a top 10 project. It was a, it was a crypto, um, it was a blockchain. And their promise was, again, kind of addressing, well, people aren't using Bitcoin for transactions. So let's create a stable coin uh, where the value of that coin will be basically pegged to a dollar. Um, and that worked fine up until, you know, its value dipped from a dollar to 99 cents then to 98 cents and all the way down until people were like, uh-oh, what's going on here? The stable coin collapsed. wasn't so stable. Yeah. Yes. And eventually collapsed to zero. And that whole project, which was, again, a top 10 project, um, went from $40 billion in market cap to zero in a matter of days. So what happens when that happens? You basically suck a bunch of money out of an ecosystem. And you find out who's been swimming naked. And that's kind of what happened. Big hedge fund that was exposed to that project basically took a huge loss. They had uh, loans out at a lot of centralized crypto lenders, which again, you know, you think about the analogy to the financial system, it'd be the same as a hedge fund takes a loss. They go back to the banks they owe money to. They say, hey, sorry, we don't have the money that we owed you. So then the contagion spills over and you have those banks fail. And so, so this is sort of like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. This what is exactly that. Okay. This is exactly that. And who gets burned in that? I mean, really, it's like everything starts to go down. Good projects that have been doing everything right get dented because now all of a sudden valuations come down. People are spooked. People are panicked. Um, and you see everything kind of take a hit, right? And so that's what's happening right now in the crypto world. And it sucks for a number of reasons, mostly because like in this case, retail traders, mom and pop, Traders are getting hit very hard. Well, um, they were told in uh, Super Bowl ads to buy some crypto, <laughs> right? I mean, it, that for I mean, that was the headline on the Super Bowl this year. Is like you know the big the all the crypto companies are advertising, and you got to buy crypto. And, and in retrospect, maybe that was a big red flag. You know, maybe that was the signal. It's always the signal when you start to see non crypto native people get sucked in and start to pump projects. That's always a big red flag because it means they're running out of people to bring into the system. And I'm not trying to say crypto is a Ponzi scheme, like it can survive with the people that are already in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But it generally is, uh, you know, in retrospect, the same thing happened in 2018 too. It's generally a red flag and it should have you saying, wait a minute, how big has this grown? And why is, uh, I mean, Snoop Dogg is actually pretty crypto native, so I'm not going to use him as an example. But why is Larry David telling me to sign up for FTX, I guess? Would be a good example. <laughs> there you go. Good example. Larry David suddenly is telling me in a Super Bowl ad to buy crypto. Yes. Red flag. <laughs> and again, no disrespect to Larry David, but also he's not really uh, who I think of when it comes to crypto. But we, we should have, for lack of a better phrase, curbed our enthusiasm when yes. we saw that. Yes. I see what you did there, and I agree. Yes, that would have been a good time because then you would have been able to get out ahead of all of this in February because, yes, Terra's collapse happened in May. And now we're seeing a bunch of these centralized lenders running to issues now in June and so, hopefully not bad into July. So where are we in the contagion right now? I mean, and, and I guess that's the big question. That's what you're trying to figure out is like, because typically the adage in Wall Street is, you know, sell high, buy low. We're going low, very low right now. Yeah. And, you know, how long will this last, especially as we head into a recession, potentially interest rates continue to hike up. 
Um, and you have these larger global economic factors playing in here. Yeah. Um, Mo, you've struck on the million dollar question right there. And I would say, um, basically, there's a lot of bad overhang here. And it's, and it's, again, it goes back to the same reason as to why things are different in crypto. There is no lender of last resort. There is no Fed to come to the rescue. So a lot of people are kind of drawing comparisons to what happened in the early 1900s when JP Morgan was basically the lender of last resort, the man himself, not the bank, just kind of rich guy who would say, all right, well, I will save you from complete collapse. Right. Some people don't know this, that JP Morgan himself bailed out. Did he bail out the government or the Fed wasn't around at that point? I mean, he bailed out banks that clearly had run into issues and it was just straight up. All right, well, I'll save the day (laughs) because I'm the only one who can afford to save the day. And weirdly, uh, that's basically what's happening in crypto right now. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO of FTX, the same company that ran those Larry David ads. Um, Richest 29-year-old in the world. And he's basically scooping up a lot of these distressed lenders, same way that JP Morgan did back in the early 1900s. And a lot Hmm. of people are watching that play out and drawing the connection there. And you could say, oh, this is a bad thing for crypto. We were supposed to be decentralized. Now it's going to be even more centralized if SBF, as he's called, owns all this stuff. But the, the alternative to that is, I don't know, these platforms fail. Everyone who had put money in, these mom and pop investors who put maybe a thousand, couple thousand dollars into platforms like Celsius that are currently locking withdrawals, they lose their money. And how is that any better? So, I mean, you're kind of stuck with these, you know, I wouldn't call it damned if you do, damned if you don't, because I think helping people avoid losses like that is generally better. But yeah, you got Sam Bankman fried kind of, you know, reproducing history here, trying to come in and... and help these stressed companies and save the day in that sense. And so it's been fascinating to kind of watch play out. And to your point, I don't think it's, it's over yet and he's not buying up everything. And we're going to see kind of who's saved, who's not as this contagion continues to sprinkle through crypto. And yeah, I mean, I I think there's more room to run here because there are just so much leverage in the system. Um, And again, a $40 billion project like Terra going completely to zero is going to have some ramifications, and that doesn't shake out instantaneously. It takes time to figure out who was swimming naked. I was going to, I know you're not here to dole out financial advice uh, to consumers who are, you know, everyone wants to know, like, do I sell right now? Like, you know, I still have some money left in the system. Do I put more in? Is there consensus at all in terms of, uh, you know, crypto financial advice? to those mom and pop people who, who believe those ads in January? Yeah, I mean, that's why I started Crypto Uncomplicated. It's kind of why I quit Yahoo and, and wanted to kind of focus on building out what I'm building out now is, is because, you know, I believe in this space. A lot of people believe in this space. And I think a lot of people want to see it grow and, and grow in a smart way, in a safe way. Um, and so, you know, increasingly, I've been hit up by, you know, my friends asking the same questions and saying, well, you know, I might not have been as heavily invested as you were in the top. So now might be a good time to jump in right now. And I mean, the the advice, what's interesting is everyone thinks crypto is so different, but it's almost the same thing when it comes to any sort of investing, right? And I guess what we're seeing play out with this contagion and, um, you know, how some of these companies are getting out of it, looking very parallel to the traditional system is the takeaway, is investing in crypto is no different than investing in 
a lot of other things, whether it be stocks or bonds or whatever, you just got to be smart with kind of how you make those bets. And I think a lot of people always talk about dollar cost averaging, right? It's, it's not all about putting your money to work at one price point. It's kind of playing around with small amounts. If it's $100 a day or not $100 a day, if you, it depends on how much you have to work with. But kind of taking small little bets along the way um, and you know, averaging your, your costs out rather than jumping it all in when it's 64,000 and all-time high. So, I mean, where we're at right now, I would still kind of be monitoring price levels for anyone who is not exposed to crypto yet and maybe wanting to hold. But the other thing that I kind of remind people is like, this is not, day trading is hard as is. Day trading crypto is basically a fool's errand, I think, because you just don't know. There's so much more information that these projects and people at them have than you. And that's why, you know, regulators are trying to figure this out too. But I would look at Bitcoin and Ethereum as kind of more longer term bets. You're not going to be making those bets and hoping that you double your money in the year. Um, You'd probably want to hold those for much longer. I'm still a long-term believer in the technology and, and where kind of this whole ecosystem goes. So if you match that, I'd think about it that way. At the height of this six months ago, I was hearing about a new coin every day. Like I think what, the Netflix show uh, based out of Korea. Squid Game. The Squid Game coin. Yes, which was a scam. So yeah, you can complete create scam. these. Yeah. Complete scam. Um, which I didn't report on for that reason, but other other networks did. And so, you know, pat on my back on that one. But yeah, there were there are a lot of these. And basically, you know, there are too many. They're going to consolidate and a lot of these are just going to go to zero too. And it's it's basically a question of what technology fits what use case, right? And if, if that makes sense to fit on maybe just one chain, then we'll see that play out. What has been interesting though, I guess, in this kind of cycle was there were a lot of competitors to Ethereum, right? So we already talked about Bitcoin kind of being a store of value. It is what it is. That'll work for that use case. But all of these other ones were trying to attack, you know, more maybe transaction focused technologies or maybe, you know, uh, the financialization of all kinds of things. So if you're thinking about a self-driving car, you own the car and you get paid on how many you know rides it drives and picks up, all that stuff could be kind of done in a decentralized way. Um, and so you had a bunch of Ethereum competitors that popped up. Avalanche, Solana are two of the big ones. And you wondered, all right, are all of these going to be kind of worth what their valuations are? Because these were worth billions of dollars. Or is one of those going to maybe take away market share from Ethereum? And is it kind of going to cannibalize maybe the market cap that, that all of them could be, right? Because like, let's say Avalanche beats out Ethereum because it's more efficient or whatever. What does that mean for how much money should go to Ethereum, right? And so you kind of start to see how it could be a bit of a zero-sum game-esque um, because a lot of these use cases could be built on just one chain. Um so, you know, as that plays out, we'll see what happens. But I do think, you know, we don't even know what kind of some of these technologies can solve just yet. And so it might be too early. It might be hard to say, um, you know, what this looks like. But I do think, you know, that that number of projects, viable projects is going to come way down uh, from thousands to probably below 100. Interesting. So c- consolidation, if you will. I, I do think the irony here is people were talking about crypto mimicking the traditional financial system is that it, there's almost a there's an upside there because now that you have institutional investors, major banks, organizations um, invested in crypto, they're also invested in the success of crypto. So is that a you know is that seen as a stabilizing factor? The fact that in this newest bull run in the past couple of years, really prominent bull faced names got involved here. 
They did, um, you know, and that can go both ways. I mean, even in Terra, there were a lot of respected investors that had really talked about the promise of a project like that. Um, and again, you know, that's a, that's a big use case because it was basically not only did they issue stable coins in US dollars, but it was in a lot of different currencies around the world. And so the uptake from retail investors was rather quick because it was easy for them to kind of on-ramp and off-ramp. Um, they didn't need to buy dollars and then buy Bitcoin or, or do anything like that. Um, and they could spend kind of in those stable coins and it was a lot easier. Um, so that was a use case that was going great up until the point that it failed. And, and yeah, I think, you know, had it just kind of operated on a smaller scale, it would have been fine, but it got the attention of, of more institutional investors and people who understand how these things work. And um, I think that accelerated maybe some of bringing the problems at that project to light. And I think that's why it collapsed so quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think that there is a use case regardless. Maybe you can put the technology aside and just focus in on Bitcoin. That use case is still there for everyone else that doesn't have the luxuries we have here. Does that mean that it's going to be you know, a super, super lucrative space to be in if that's all it is? Probably not. Um, but if you think about all of the economies around the world that are those or governments that are insecure adopting Bitcoin, then that becomes rather interesting too. And here at home, the, the battle between congressmen and women, Republicans and Democrats agreeing on maybe some of the upside in crypto is also pretty fascinating to watch. Well, That's yeah. a very long story, but I mean, like if you think about Bitcoin, maybe debasing the dollar standing around the globe, that's fascinating. Um, one of the countries we've been watching is El Salvador, which adopted yeah. Bitcoin as its currency, like literally. And uh, obviously, he's gotten the leader there has gotten a lot of criticism for it because Bitcoin during that time since their adoption has lost a lot of its value. And, you know, residents and citizens there are like, well, I thought this was supposed to be better. And this seems worse than the situation we had before. Do you see a situation where despite at least the you know past year, we're going to see more countries adopting like, is there talk in other countries of going the route of El Salvador? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a few of them. I was watching Tonga as well as one that was kind of, you know, floating the idea of geothermal powered Bitcoin miners. Um, you know, in El Salvador, they're talking about the Bitcoin city powered by a volcano. Um, basically, a Bitcoin miner powered by a volcano, which is crazy to some people to think about. But it's, you know, it's completely possible. Um and yeah, I mean, you know, we were looking at a lot of other Latin American countries as well, kind of looking to this El Salvador experiment to see, hmm, wonder how this goes. Obviously, when prices are moving in the wrong direction, it doesn't make it look great. Um, but El Salvador did start with kind of a small scale purchase. And it's not like a major piece of their economy is flowing into Bitcoin. Um, but it does kind of, I, I guess, you know, present a, a peek into what the future could look like. I do think that more countries around the world will embrace definitely the technology when it comes to um, the option, right? Because we've seen two things. You had China kind of go the opposite route and say, well, we're just going to ban it. No more Bitcoin. One issue that is brought up often by leaders uh, here in the US and, and abroad is the use of crypto by criminals, criminal networks, etc. What has been done? What can be done? And and uh, where are we right now in terms of policing the crypto world to ensure that the the worst among us aren't utilizing it? 
Yeah, it's a really good question because it has been brought up increasingly by regulators whenever they talk about you know why crypto might be bad. Um, not only that, but also the scams. But when it comes to kind of, I guess, criminals using it, there are a lot of data points out there that kind of say that that's overhyped a little bit, um, mostly because public ledgers are a terrible way to ever move money around if you're a criminal, right? Because there's, there's a complete money trail there. You can follow the wallet that it moves from into another wallet. And basically, if you're um, a district attorney out there, a detective, you're trying to figure this out, it's very easy, right? And, and there have so been some be, prominent examples of the FBI and, and other yeah. law enforcement, uh, you know, landing some big fish who are yeah. committing crimes via crypto. The Bitfinex hack, I mean, what was that? It was a $3 billion clawback, I think, is what they were able to, DOJ was celebrating that one. So, I mean, yeah, it's a terrible way to kind of launder money. Uh, I would not advise it. If there's one takeaway on this podcast, <laughs> it's continue to do crimes in cash. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's just, it's it's talked about a lot, but I really don't think that it's as serious. Now, of course, when we talk about sanctions, I wrote about that as well, right? It was, it was interesting to see kind of, you know, people being a little bit... Um, uh, hypocrites when it comes to only focusing on the positives in the Ukraine-Russia conflict when it was, you know, a lot of people were donating cryptocurrencies to Ukrainians or to the government, Ukraine itself, to kind of help in the war. Um, but at the same time, you had a lot of Russians who may be skirting sanctions by using crypto as well. And that was definitely documented. And that can happen. Um, which, again, kind of gets back to the point of, is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, if you're a patriot wanting to defend America's grandstanding and, and position, on the global economy, you would say, yes, that's a bad thing. If there's an alternative crypto rail that's being built that China or Russia can use um, to kind of skirt US sanctions and the Western control of the banking, global banking ecosystem, then yeah, that would be a bad thing. Um, but you know, it, it, it was kind of interesting to see that play out and kind of how crypto played a part in it. I also think that that was a little bit overblown because it doesn't seem like a lot of Russians were really skirting sanctions in mass using crypto but it was definitely something that i think congressmen women regulators politicians would want to be focused on if that's kind of how things play out in the future one other concern that's brought up and we've sort of alluded to it with the whole the use of these computers which require a lot of power to do bitcoin mining is the environmental impact um that cryptocurrency currently has where um and and then there are you know, how other cryptocurrencies that compete that say we actually require less power to be mined. And so it's a competing factor. And if you care about the environment and climate change, you should invest in this currency over that currency. Where is the discussion? How much damage is this whole crypto thing doing to the climate? Um, and and what's what's ahead on that front? Yeah, it's I mean, I guess, you know, the one thing I've learned in covering all these different projects is like anything that sets you apart is the thing you focus in on. Right. Um, because they do all look very similar. So if you do have maybe, I guess, a more efficient, energy efficient mining system, you're going to flex that. You're going to shout it from every mountaintop you can. Um, and we have seen that play out, right? And there is some truth to like more efficient blockchains when it comes to energy usage to secure the network. You know, proof of stake, as it's called, is just a different system of kind of securing the network and monitoring transactions than proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses, which is more energy intensive. And the Bitcoin advocates would say that's because you want to have something like this in your in your um, basically securing your network because no one can ever control more than fifty percent of the electricity in the world, right? Or like the how much power, power are we talking world. about? By the way, when we talk about like they're sucking up a lot of power, like how much 
like the you know to mine a bitcoin well i mean it's i mean it depends on kind of what machine you're using but not a lot you know it's like you can run a normal computer it's like how much energy does a computer use it's just like and then in mass when you have an actual when you put a bunch of computers together right right some of these miners have you know hundreds of hundreds or more computers running at the same time yeah it's gonna be a lot more but you have a lot of advocates pointing out that you know they generally don't do that at peak hours and they don't kind of come into a community and, and start running up a bunch of energy prices that makes it a lot more inefficient. It's, it's just, you know, if you don't believe crypto is necessary, you're going to take the stance that this is a waste of energy. And that's totally congruent with that, with that belief. If you're in, if you're in crypto and you think we need Bitcoin, then you're going to come to the conclusion that, look, we should definitely have this because there's a need for this. And we use energy on things we think we need to use energy on, right? I'm going to put gas in my car to go to work. Um, now the, I guess, if you really want to dig into that, you would say, well, your car should be an electric car. Don't spend, don't use gas. And that's kind of where Ethereum is going right now. They're upgrading their system from proof of work, which is similar to Bitcoin, over to proof of stake. Which so is, it, again, it, it, Ethereum is the Tesla to, uh, to the to gas be. guzzler that is Bitcoin. They're trying to be now. And yeah, and, and there were other, keep in mind, there are other blockchains that already had made that move or started as proof of stake. So, you know, they're boasting that they're 99% more energy efficient than Bitcoin is. And there is truth to that. Um, so, you know, you've got those options. And that's why we've seen a lot of celebrities kind of lean into Tezos, which is interesting. Another blockchain out there. Um, they, they kind of have their NFTs on that network rather than Ethereum because Ethereum hasn't converted yet. And they flex that it's green and efficient. And, you know, that crowd might care more about that. Um, than maybe some other people do. But it's just been interesting to see kind of the marketing around that. I think, you know, the energy and, and environmental concerns have always been a little bit overstated. If you think about some of the headlines from Bitcoin usage, if it scales, I think there was a headline in Newsweek or something a couple of years ago that all of the Earth's energy would be consumed by the Bitcoin network by 2022 or something like that. And clearly not the case because we're still here. Well, the uh, current iteration of Newsweek does have a tendency to uh, exaggerate in some of the headlines for <laughs> to get you to click. I've 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 had a few recently, Zach, where it's like asteroid headed towards Earth, and then you click on the headline, and the eighth paragraph is like, "But it'll miss us by four and a half million miles." Thank you, <laughs> Newsweek. All right, so we've learned a lot on this conversation on this pod uh, today, Zach. Um, we had we had some boom times. Uh, we had a little too many projects going. Um, the the tide went out and we saw who was naked. A lot of people discovering naked. that. A lot, a lot of, of naked people. It out turns there. out there are a lot of naked companies and they've <laughs> lost their value. We think we might be close to the bottom, but we're not sure yet. That uh, you're telling people crypto is a long term investment. So if you're looking to regain uh, the fortune that Larry David said you would get out of this, it might take a while. Uh, but that the fundamental concept is around. There's some use cases, et cetera. I'm just trying to summarize all, all the things we've gotten to here, right? Yeah, oh, um, that's right. Um, yeah. And so we're looking ahead here. Uh, you know, One question I got from a few people was, besides your newsletter, of course, Zach, where are you turning to for regular tips and news? I mean, there are a lot of self-described experts out there. When you go on Twitter or any social media, they're like, let me tell you what's going to happen. And they put a lot of charts up with lines and something's happening here and you should yes. definitely do xyz where where should people turn to for reliable information when it comes to this sector 
Well, you know, we kind of just use it as an example for, um, you know, a hypothetical, but what I described maybe isn't so far off in the distant future when it comes to uh, decentralized media organization and a show that might be focused on this. You know, I haven't announced anything yet, but uh, <laughs> that might be one place to turn to or my newsletter. But no, to your question, beyond just those things, you know, it is it has been kind of the most difficult job of being a crypto journalist, <laughs> trying to tease out the scammers from the legitimate projects in the space. And a lot of that stuff is just talked about openly on Twitter, which, you know, there's a reason why crypto Twitter as like a term exists just because so many people interact with each other on Twitter to kind of talk about these things out in the open until things go wrong. Then it's really hard to ever find a, a founder or any CEO who wants to chat. Right. Um, but I mean, there's still a lot of coverage. It's, it's exploded so much. When I was at CNBC in 2018, I tried to basically tell everyone there like, hey, we should be focusing on crypto more. And the reason was there were a lot of crypto publications that were popping up and Coindesk is one of them. And that's really been, uh, you know, it's expanded today. Um, so Coindesk be, is, a, is a place to turn to for good coverage. I mean, yeah, I know a lot of the people over there at Coindesk, uh, you know, it's it's as far as as far as like crypto native publications go, you know, can't go wrong, I suppose, there at the block, decrypt. There's a lot of these that have popped up. But again, a lot of them focus on crypto native stories. There's a weird disconnect, I think, between like kind of the Wall Street journals, the Bloombergs of the world that kind of approach some crypto stories with A, maybe a complete misunderstanding of how some of these things work, but then also B, you know, an unhealthy skepticism, shall I say. You know, I mean, it's healthy to be skeptical of a lot of these things, but sometimes actively taking a negative stance can be a little tough for people to trust you as a news source, right? And so there's a weird gap between both of these. You've got the crypto native ones that are kind of maybe potentially being too friendly with a lot of the coverage or only speaking about those stories in a way that crypto native people will understand. Mm -hmm. And you've got the outside media that are kind of in their own world too. Um, you know, not to discredit them, but they have a different audience. And so there's a pretty big gap in the middle, which is kind of where my crypto uncomplicated newsletter was trying to be is kind of speaking to both audiences. Um, but, you know, I guess those are kind of the two worlds that exist right now. It depends on, I guess, who's listening to this and where they want to be. But those are some options. And and as we uh, look ahead here, um, you know, we're in summer 2022. Are there certain, you know, uh, time periods you're looking ahead to or certain events uh, that'll help us get a sense of where things go next? Um, um, you know, yeah, I mean, so obviously a lot of this had been kind of, I guess, pre, I mean, if you were watching kind of the way that Bitcoin and Ethereum had been trading relative to the actual stock market, that correlation was basically at an all-time high. It was trading in lockstep with where stocks were going and just basically more volatile than that. So stocks were going to be down, Bitcoin and Ethereum were going to be down. It's just kind of the way that it was trading. And so since that's been the case, Generally, so go the market, so goes crypto right now. And right now, the markets aren't exactly as... as Does one lead the other? Yeah, you know, there were a lot of analysts that were saying that crypto would bottom first, and it had been kind of leading, right? So, like, whenever that pivot happened, I'm pretty sure, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure in 2020, right? Remember when everyone was panicking and when the pandemic basically first started, crypto and stocks both went into a freefall. I'm pretty sure crypto may have bottomed first that sent a signal to maybe some people watching that and saying, all right, stocks might recover now. And of course they did. Um, and so could crypto maybe lead the recovery here as both are in free fall? Potentially. 
especially if it kind of shakes out from the bottom first, it might be a more violent sell-off than stocks, which it has been so far this year. So there are a lot of people saying that all that could shake out by the end of the year. Um, again, uh, I think I think that that might be a good entry point for people who might not have been in. Depends on how bad it is. Yeah. It's been real tough to kind of predict all this stuff, and it's been tough to see so many people lose money, right? And and again, right, and, and shops. And and how are they going to re- reconvince folks, especially if your last your first experience with crypto was in this last year? You were convinced of it. You feel burnt by it. Are the institutions, I mean, have they given thought to how they're going to convince, you know, uh, regular investors, consumer investors that like, no, no, like, I know your first experience really sucked, but (laughs) you got to stick with us long term. Yeah, there's a lot of problems, right, when it comes to just user experiences in crypto. And I've been on many a panel discussing all of these things, and and it's not ready for prime time, right? All the people right now are early adopters. It's all the kind of the tech nerds that were... Again, where, where I, are we? Is there a percentage? What percent of Americans are um, invested or involved in crypto in some way? I mean, those numbers are all over the place. I've seen 50% of Americans. I've seen 20%. I've, it depends on the poll. But again, 50%. No, there's no way. The numbers are wild out there and I don't believe any of them. But um, I think I think the Gemini reports, that's another one, the Winklevoss twins in their company. I think that one had it close to about 20%, which seemed a lot more accurate. But again, it's like, what is what does that mean? Because if you're on Coinbase, you bought Bitcoin, are you exposed to crypto? Not really. You kind of have a centralized account. You don't have a wallet. You haven't really taken custody of your Bitcoin, right? You're just paying a company to custody it for you. As we're learning, those are two very different things. Because if that if that custodian, if that company goes bankrupt, you basically lose your Bitcoin. And so there's a um, saying in crypto. How would you advise people then, as you say that, like, how do I ensure that the Bitcoin that I bought that was $64,000 and now is worth whatever, $20,000, how do I make sure that I, I can collect that at some point? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's kind of what we all were talking about, right? And that's the saying is not your keys, not your coins. And people in crypto have been saying that for a long time, but it was up until this last month that really we had real use, real life examples to point to and say, this is why we were telling you uh, it's dangerous to keep your crypto custodied at some of these centralized institutions, because if they go bust, you lose your Bitcoin or you can't withdraw it. And that's what happened with Celsius. They locked withdrawals. So, I mean, the takeaway there is, you know, be smart about the risks, do your research to figure out what happens if some of these places go under or run into issues? And if you want to be extremely safe, you can custody themselves in a wallet, you know, digital wallet, MetaMask or Trust Wallet or any of these other wallets out there um, and own it yourself so that you're in control rather than like just trusting, you know, the PayPal's of the world. It's kind of like Venmo, right? It's like, yeah, the number is there on the screen, but what happens if Venmo goes down? Where does that cash right. go? It's a very challenging subject to kind of grasp at times, but appreciate you doing your best to kind of take us through the last decade, the last six months, and where we might be going. And um, Covered and a lot, man. I hope that made sense. Zach, thank you so much. Our thanks again to Zach Guzman for his insight. You can check out more in his newsletter, Crypto Uncomplicated. You can find that at zachguzman.bulletin.com. That's Z-A-C-K-G-U-Z-M-A-N.bulletin.com. There you can find his regular updates on all things crypto. You can, of course, stay updated on all the news and read more from this conversation over at our newsletter, monews.bulletin.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. 
I also look forward to your feedback and suggestions. You can email us, podcast at mo.news. We hope to continue to bring regular conversations and perspective from experts, leaders, and journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories around the world. Thanks for listening today. I'll see you back here soon.